0: So one of the things that we have a problem with in terms of strategy is we have a finite number of engineers on the Go team, and I always am hoping to tap into them to write blog posts about modules or update documentation. I know Effective Go needs to be rewritten with modules in mind. There's just a lot with regards to educating. And so we launched learn.go.dev, which was kind of a beta site curation that takes in just helps organize some of the information but at this point it's pretty static and it could be akin to the wiki on GitHub for Go. So we realized pretty soon on either Google has to hire a ton, I mean dozens and dozens of content creators and tech writers to scale this for the next 10 million or however many million or we need to think about an open source strategy for this.
1: Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at linodecom ChangeLog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling like the Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with. Ocean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog.
2: it's go time.
3: Welcome to go time, your source for diverse discussions from around the go community. If this is your first time listening, subscribe now at gotime.fm. We are now streaming video alongside our voices during the live show on Tuesdays. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog to be notified of that. But if you'd rather not see our faces, that makes a lot of sense too. Okay, here we go.
4: Alright, welcome everybody. In this episode of Go Time, we're going to be talking about play with Go. Um, This is a new project that was created by Marcos and Paul, our guests. So I guess I'll just start with introducing them. First, we have Paul Jolly. Paul, you want to say hi? Hi. And then we have Marcos Nils. Marcos, you want to say hi?
2: Hola. Hi, everyone. Marcos here.
4: Um, We also have our panelists, Carmen, with us. Uh, Carmen, I believe you were involved with this, correct?
0: Yeah. Hi, I was.
4: Okay, so it'll be good to get your perspective on this. And then lastly, we have our newest panelist, Chris Brando. Chris, you want to say hi to everybody? Hello, everyone. Okay, so I guess to get started, Marcos and Paul, you want to tell us a little bit about yourselves and what this project is you've been working on?
2: Yeah, you were saying, uh, John, that uh, Carmen was involved. Actually, I believe Carmen is the reason why in the very beginning this, this uh, was possible, the short story is that uh, I met Carmen and Paul at the Go meetup in London. I was happening to be living in London, like not so long ago. I'm in Argentina now, by the way. And uh, speaking about Go, of course, and uh, it was funny because uh, it was a-, a session, if I recall correctly, about testing, right? And uh, the presenters were like discussing about different testing tools. And uh, after, after the presentation, I, I reached to Carmen and, and I told her, hey, I actually wrote a Go testing library. And I don't know if someone recalls, it's called Goblin. It was one of the first BDD libraries that was uh, written for Go and then coming from the Node.js world. So what I tried to do is basically replicate Mocha into Go. Anyways, we started like drifting conversations. And then I talked to her and I showed her to play with Docker, which is where I play with Go takes inspiration from. And she introduced me to Paul, and I'll let you Paul tell you the rest of the story.
5: Yeah, so I'm Paul. um, As Michael said, we met at London Gophers. I actually was in sort of the last few years, I've been co-organizer of London Gophers. And Carmen, I think you were actually speaking at that particular London Gophers. We were hosted at Cloudflare from memory. This was all in the pre-COVID days when I think we had about 250 people there. In addition to organizing London Gophers in my spare time, I also maintain a number of open source projects and co-organizer of the Golang tools group as well. But as Michael was saying, he and I have been working on Play with Go for the last six months. Uh, It's a series of hands-on interactive browser-based guides that introduce the tools required to work with the Go programming language. So really like a a zero-cost way of getting up and running beyond the, the tour of Go and beyond the Go Playground to actually get programming with Go.
4: Okay. So I guess my next question would be, like, what exactly is Play With Go? Like, why would somebody want to check it out? And like, what problems does it solve, I suppose? Yeah,
5: sure. So the, the simplest way to describe it is to think of the tour of Go is very familiar to people as a way of starting to learn the Go programming language. But once you want to go beyond the language and actually wrap your hands around something and... It, create something, you need to start, you need to understand the Go tooling. And that's why you either need to get something set up locally. Generally speaking, you need to install Go, have your computer set up with an editor, etc. So play with Go is a way, a very low cost way that doesn't require you to have anything installed locally. As I said, the guides are browser based. So when you open a Play with Go guide, on the left-hand side, you've got the, the guide which sort of reads as a, a guide or a tutorial as usual. And on the right-hand side of the page is an actual interactive terminal that is hosted on Google Cloud. So this is effectively real compute resources that are live in the browser for you. So as you're working your way through the guide, you've got command blocks in this left-hand side, which is the tutorial part. And you can actually click on those command blocks and they will execute in the right-hand side, the terminal, on that in the Google Cloud compute resources. So, for example, you could have a command block on the left-hand side that simply just ran go version command and that would run the command in the right-hand side and show you the output from it. So that's the interactive nature of it. You can also create files as you're going along. So, for example, let's just imagine you're creating a guide that is explains how to create tests in Go. You would obviously create yourself a package, and then within that package, you would have perhaps a regular package file and then a test file as well. And you would create these two files by having code blocks in the left-hand side of the guide. And then with a final command block, you would click on the command block, and that would run go test, and you'd see all this happening live within your browser. So this is it's a bit of an experiment, really, to see whether this kind of interactive type of documentation works. Because this bit, the tour of Go and Go Playground are incredibly popular as a way of getting to know the language. But then at that point, there's kind of nothing. You're left to your, to your own devices. And this is a way, as, as Carmen said in her closing keynote at GopherCon, of trying to make, lower the barriers to entry, if you like, for the next one million Gophers, i.e. not place any requirements on them to have anything installed locally and just try things out in the browser in a nice, fun, interactive way.
4: So if I understand this correctly, that would mean that this is like, if you wanted to show somebody exactly how running go test works, you could do it there. Um, But then you could also jump into other tools like GoFumped and things like that and actually show them how it formats code and and different things like that.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not just limited to tools that sort of run just on that machine. As you can see, if you actually go to play with Go.dev, there are a number of module based guides on there as well that show the full life cycle, if you like, of a module from just creating your first Go package to then creating and publishing a module to then actually getting that module through the Go proxy. So it is a, 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 a really a beginning to end story when it comes to modules as well as tools themselves.
4: So with something like this, do you imagine it being, like, I guess where I'm seeing this is a uh or another use case, is the fact that when modules are first introduced, it was sort of hard to wrap your head around it unless you actually grabbed the code that had it and installed it and then got to play with it a little bit. Uh, Do you see this as something that would also help with that, where they're doing proposals and they can actually show documentation and see how it would work?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that um, we tried to do with the launch of Play With Go as well. Jay Conrad, who works on the Go team, actually put together a guide that demonstrates a new feature of modules that's going to be present in Go 116, which is the ability to retract a module version. So let's say, for example, you accidentally publish version one of your module when you didn't mean to, intended to stay on version zero, i.e. unstable. Module retraction allows you to say, no, hang on, that was an accident. I didn't mean to publish that. And so you can not only can you look at the documentation that Jay has already written for module retraction, but you can actually go and see how that how does that workflow actually pan out when you're doing it in practice. And so there's a full example there of you publishing a module, accidentally publishing a V1, et cetera. So yeah, it does give you a good way of demonstrating to other people, okay, what does this actually feel like when you're using it? Is the UI UX around this tooling correct? And a form of early feedback, if you like, as well.
4: Okay. Um Marcos, you mentioned this was based on Play with Docker. Is that a similar type project and is like what specifically about this makes it related to Go or is there anything specific that's, you know, makes this more Go specific than Docker?
2: Yes, good question. So Play with Docker is actually a project that I started with a friend that is called Jonathan that we need of course to give him attribution because this uh, wouldn't have been possible without his efforts. We started it in 2018. It's, it's funny because it was actually part of a hackathon project that we did in a, in a weekend, I believe, because, we, you, know, you know, we were busy developers. And the reason why we did that is because we saw, I believe, uh, someone that you know in the Go community, which is uh, Jerome Petasoni from ex-Docker employee. He was actually trying to teach Docker to people, you know, and and the way that he did that in the past was provision a dedicated VM for each participant of his, uh, workshops, and then he need to provide five EMS per student, right? Because you need to make a cluster and so on. And the, the UX around that experience wasn't the best one. So he basically, he like literally gave a piece of paper with, to each student that he had to print beforehand. And then each student would have to have a, like a, an SSH connection to the terminals, and then the whole thing, uh, became very difficult to, to manage. So we were like looking at this workshop with Jonathan and, and then we said, Hey, this could be easily done in the browser where you could have all your session in a single place. You can jump between terminals and you can run Docker there. You can expose services, you can access all services with a host name, super easy. And then in like, a, I believe it was one night that we sit and, and start doing some coding. And then we we got the POC running. Of course, Play with Docker is an open source project and it's written in Go. And uh, after that, uh, as I said before, when I met Paul, I told him, Hey, this could be easily translated to anything that's pretty much terminal based, right? Like either go CLI, it could be any programming language. We even did a play with Kubernetes. It's also something that that is based on play with Docker. We did play with Nomad and now play with Go, right? We were trying to bring new experiences for just people that need to like learn through this uh, type of experience.
4: So, you said that Play with Docker is open source. Is Play with Go also open source?
2: Yes, it is. Everything is open source. If you go to the Play with Go GitHub organization, you're gonna you're gonna find several repos there. Uh, you have uh, the Play with Go, which is the main repo that basically brings all the components together. There are different components that I, I I believe Paul can explain them better. And then there are some other repos out there that are basically like the website, the tool that generates the guides and makes sure that the guide is consistent. And and this is a very important point, uh, John, because you were mentioning about, for example, learning how to use modules, right? It is funny because if you go to the Go blog right now and you see the first blog entry about using modules, you're going to find that there were some examples using uh, Russ's repos in GitHub or like his uh, basically vanity URLs. And you're going to find that those uh, do not work right now, right? Because the URLs changed or I don't know, maybe the repos are in the wrong version right now. The benefit of Play With Go is because everything is automated and tested. We run the complete tests on each iteration. Like every time we do a commit, we add a new thing, we change a guide, we update a guide. Uh, Paul did an amazing job on rerunning that stuff const- constantly. So we can always guarantee that the tutorial is going to be updated and working.
5: Yeah, so John, just back to your point on it being open source, yeah, it is an open source project. One of the questions we've actually had from folks who've actually tried it out so far is, why do you need me to log in when I'm accessing playwithgo.dev? And it's a great question, and it's kind of related to the fact that this is an open source project. We're not logging in in order to steal email addresses, but as I said sort of in the introduction, there's a real container that is running per guide that you launch within playwithgo.dev. So there are real compute resources and hence money that we are spending whenever anybody opens a guide. And so, yes, we are an open source project, and we're funded by sponsors entirely. But the focus, as Marcos was saying, is that this really is a project that is by the community, for the community, to to coin a bit of a, a phrase there, is that whilst it does look like this is an official Go project, this is an open source project, and the intention is that... Anybody should feel free to contribute in, in various different ways, whether that be just feedback on the site itself, contributing to Play With Go, Play With Docker, any of the open source projects that are a part of it. Or if anybody wants to contribute content as well, there really is a sort of an open door as far as um, how we can make this content platform better. And as Marcos said, there's ways in which we've try to lower the barrier to contributing by making sure that if anybody does contribute any content or any fixes, we can know instantly whether there are any problems with any of the existing guides should be a fairly resilient system.
4: So you mentioned that it's a funded project. Do you want to, before we move on, do you want to take a minute to just mention some of the, do you remember who the sponsors are? I don't want to put you on the spot.
5: Well, I think we should, uh, at this point, we should actually say a big thank you to Carmen because um, Marcos said that it was Carmen who helped originate this project. And it's been through the support of Carmen and her team at Google that this has actually happened in the first place. And I think in along the lines of Carmen and her team sponsoring Static Check and TinyGo, that's where the support of Play With Go comes. It's sort of that same kind of sponsorship. And so, Carmen, a huge thank you to you, because I think it's this kind of model of supporting Projects, open source projects is one that's obviously Play With Go has uh, originated from. But I think it's a fantastic model as well because it then helps those projects to support other open source projects as well. And I should just call out a couple that we're actually using. We're using Static Check, but we're also using Gitia as well um, as part of Play With Go. So I think it's this model of larger organizations sponsoring open source projects like this is I think a very healthy one for the ecosystem, specifically the Go ecosystem here, because it encourages those open source projects to flourish. And as we know, quite a lot of projects, including Go itself, have benefited from a lot of open source projects. And the Go ecosystem itself, let's just take Static Check as an example, is benefiting massively, sort of at scale, from projects like Static Check. And so In different ways, I think these open source... So Play With Go is a very different sort of project to Static Check, for example, but it is looking to grow the Go ecosystem and the number of gophers out there. So supporting open source projects like this and indeed the people who contribute to it. So this is something I think we want to look at down the line as well is if there are people who become just absolute top contributors of content or reviewing of content or fixes to the site itself, those people should actually be rewarded in some way for doing that because that's the whole point of this sort of ecosystem. But I'm, I've been talking a lot on that. I think Carmen is the expert to actually speak to that point a bit more.
4: I'd say, Carmen, it seems like the Go team is actually putting money towards like making sure that educational material and teaching people Go is a big focus. Is that actually the case? And do you want to talk about sort of what's going on there?
0: Sure. So one of the things that we have a... A problem with in terms of strategy is we have a finite number of engineers on the Go team. And I always am hoping to tap into them to write blog posts about modules or uh, update documentation. I know Effective Go needs to be rewritten with modules in mind. There's just a lot with regards to educating. And so we launched learn.go.dev, which was kind of a beta site cur- curation that takes in just helps organize some of the information. But at this point, it's pretty static, and it could be akin to the wiki on GitHub for Go. So we realized pretty soon on, either Google has to hire a ton, I mean, dozens and dozens of content creators and tech writers um, to scale this for the next 10 million or however many million, or we need to think about an open source strategy for this. And the other thing, when I... Research the learning landscape of Go, I recognize that the current material that is existing that is produced by the Go team is static and it's text heavy. And we do have the playground and we do have the Go tour, but that's the extent in terms of being able to provide modalities of material. And so we rely largely on third party people to either do training, so art and labs or gopher guides, or we have people who are enterprising enough to create gopher sizes, such as yourself, John. So the missing link, I feel, is that as both Paul and Marcos have alluded to, there was a big gap in what I call the interactivity and the ability to make documentation not stale and have it come alive so that people can try out what's being meant by it. And it also is a change in So we have a change in people for Go coming to the language, lots and lots of people. We also have people that are a different kind of persona, which is mostly enterprise. And when you dig deeper into the persona of an enterprise or a person who uses Go professionally, they're not similar to the early adopter. Right, the early adopter is curious and they probably want to try all the new languages, whereas the professional programmer using it at work, they just want to get a job done. And they want to see what it looks like, and they're very practical and pragmatic, and they don't wanna wax eloquent about the philosophy of it or the context of it. They just want to get it done. So we've heard that being called as meat and potatoes or beans and rice, but really to the heart of it. And I think that this is Playwithgo.dev is that gap that fills for everything that's happening with Go right now. So a long-winded way, John, I'm saying yes. Uh, We're looking at ways with limited funds to be able to scale out content that would be useful to a lot of people, but also get the ecosystem involved and empower them. Because some of the most useful materials that I have found is when people want to share and teach. Everyone wants to feel useful. So I think this is a convergence of both strategy and product that is trying to meet all of those things at once. And I have a lot of hope and confidence that it will achieve that.
5: I think I'll just briefly add to what Carmen said, that what we have there with play with Go.dev at the moment is a first cut, right? It's really important to not see that as the the finished article, because it's a starting point in terms of content, but it's also a starting point in terms of the UI, the UX And the point of making it open source is that people will have really good feedback. And we already have had some excellent feedback from technical writer on the Go team, as well as Bill Kennedy, as to how we can make the UI UX better, but also how we can write the guides, this style of interactive guide in a different way as well. And so strongly encourage people who, uh, who have had a play around with it. And we've already had some feedback as to how we can tweak this. Okay, If, if you, what is the target audience for this guide here? If it is this type of audience, then actually you're going to need to cut down the introduction and not make quite so many assumptions about sort of the, the technical proficiency of somebody who's starting here. Um, so yeah, there's there's so many gaps to be filled still, but I, I think we at least have a starting point, a, st- a solid starting point here for, as Carmen was saying, this different style of learning.
1: How much time does your team spend building and maintaining internal tooling? I'm talking about those behind the scenes apps, the ones no one else sees, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, maybe even the tool your data science team hacked together so they could provide custom ad spend analytics. Now, these are tools you need so you build them, and that makes sense. But the question is, could you have built them in less time, with less effort, and less overhead and maintenance required? And the answer to that question is, yes. That's where Retool comes in. Rohan Chopra, engineering director at DoorDash, has this to say about Retool. Quote, the tools we've been able to quickly build with Retool have allowed us to empower and scale our local operators, all while reducing the dependency on engineering, end quote. Now, the internal tooling process at DoorDash was bogged down with manual data entry, missed handoffs, and long turnaround times. And after integrating Retool, DoorDash was able to cut the engineering time required to build tools by a factor of 10x and eliminate the error-prone manual processes that plague their workflows. They were able to empower back-end engineers who wouldn't otherwise be able to build front-ends from scratch, and these engineers were able to build fully functional apps in Retool in hours, not days or weeks. Your next step is to try it free at retool.com changelog. Again, retool.com changelog.
4: This is a starting point. I assume that means, like, obviously, you want to expand it and make it better and improve. So, in my mind, I guess there's a couple ways people could help. Are you looking for additional sponsors? Is that one way that organizations can help?
5: Yeah, I think we would definitely welcome that because I think there are a number of ways in which these guides could actually be improved. Just sort of building on this this starting point here of this interactive guide, as Carmen was saying, there's a large enterprise contingent effectively going to start jumping on the Go ship fairly soon. They they have already started jumping on. And one of the excellent bits of feedback we've had from Bill Kennedy has been that a fairly significant percentage of those people are going to be Windows-based. And so, quite honestly, if you have a, as you'll see, if you go to play with Go.dev, these are Linux-based guides at the moment. And actually, to make it a welcoming place for someone who's coming from a Windows background, it would be really nice to actually have a Um, a Windows container that is running where you have either a command prompt or a WSL2. And guess what? It'd be fantastic if instead of just having a plain terminal, you had VS Code integrated there as well with absolutely zero setup costs required on the user. So then you're just opening a guide and much like Marco said, in the early play with Docker days, you have no requirements on the user to install anything on their machine and they've got everything up and running for them. Here is the same type of idea as this should be possible as well when it comes to learning Go and when you actually need to come to use tooling. So you should just have the editor in the browser with you as well as the terminal. And so that's, if I'm, uh, Marcos, you should just chip in here, but that's at least one area where further sponsorship would enable, that's a fairly significant build to get those two features supported. But that, to my mind, would be where sponsorship would be well-placed, I think.
2: Yeah, completely agree with you, Paul. Like uh, right now, as as you said, like basically cloud resources and the ability to expand to different platforms, uh, I think it, it would be very appealing for us to like, I don't know, maybe host it, host a Play With Go in like a, a place like Packet where we could run ARM64, uh, especially since now everyone is going to have in one course, which are going to be ARM as well. And of course, Microsoft uh, Windows would be amazing to try it out.
5: I think as well it would if sponsorship should also be considered to be going towards content creators as well. Much back to sort of Carmen's point is that this really needs to be viewed as as an exercise as well in trying to grow an ecosystem for creating content. And we've got agreement from members of the Go team as well that for those guides which are if you like core fundamental, that they will help to to review those. And I'm sure we're going to have an army of people who are actually going to try out these guides and give feedback where the guide doesn't read well or whatever. So, this is the hope is that we can use this as a sort of a, this platform as a start on the, the content creation side of things as well. So, I think it would be important to reflect that sponsorship should really go towards ongoing costs in some way of um, of people's time in that respect as well.
4: So, you'd mentioned that like. Sponsoring and helping from an enterprise perspective would help expand what's there and you know also help with contribution. Um for individuals, I assume either giving feedback or contributing new guides is a good way to is that one of the ways you expect or hope people will be able to contribute individually?
2: Yep. So the main areas, I mean, I think we cover pretty much all the aspects of the of the platform with regarding contributions. It can be either from the content side of things, as you said. Uh, it can be from the uh, UI side of things as well, take into account that neither Paul nor myself are <laughs> UI uh, experts, uh, not at all, like very far from that actually. So the UI needs a lot of uh, rework and some polishing, as, as we said before. Another big, very big uh, aspect that we are already working on is uh, translations. Right now, as, as you might have probably seen, is pretty much everything is in English. We are... Of course, looking forward to the, to expand it, the, the platform is already based on a multi-language, uh, architecture basically. So it's very easy to extend the current guides in a different language. So we really foresee a, a near future where we could have like, I don't know, like tens of different languages, uh, due to the, uh, you know, the easiness, uh, to basically extend it. I don't know if you have any, any other things in mind, Paul?
5: No, no, I think that's a great point And I, I I can't believe we didn't already talk about that is it, as well as extending it to multi-platform, the idea is that it should be possible to write a guide that you write the script for it once essentially for a platform. And then you could say, okay, you know, if, if this script is running um, on Windows, then instead of running this command here, you run that command there, which of course there are going to be platform specifics. And as Marcos said as well is that when you're then presenting that to the user, you want it to be in their local language. So the, the, the vision is sort of that when you land on a guide, you say, hey, I'm on this platform and this is my chosen language here. And if there exists a translation for it, uh, for that guide, and you know, then absolutely we present that to the user. And we also show it to them on whatever platform they, they're interested in as well. So again, that's sort of back to Carmen's point from earlier that's really being as welcoming as possible. If we can provide people something in a language that's familiar to them for their chosen platform, it's, gonna, it's such a low friction way to get started. They don't have to install anything. They have VS Code in the browser. It, it is just, a, okay, fantastic. I'm up and running. It feels like I'm making progress already.
4: That makes sense. So what is that contribution process like? like? How would somebody get started if they wanted to either provide a translation or to write a whole new guide? What would your advice be?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. So we're just in the process of finishing up a guide that explains how to write a guide at the moment. I, that's awfully meta, but um, that will give somebody a starting point of literally how you check things out, how you create a directory for the guide itself, what structure the guide takes. So it's just split into two basic parts, which is a markdown file, and then a script, which takes the form of a queue file. And so the guide process itself, that. The the guide that explains how to create a guide will just walk you through that entire process. There's people who will be on hand to answer any questions you might have in Slack as well. So kind of expecting that initially that guide contribution process will have a few rough edges. So we're going to work through those with John. We're working with you as well on a guide around Go testing. Going to be working with um, Bill Kennedy and a number of others as well. And so. That's hopefully going to smooth off those r- rough edges for the guide contribution process. Language translations are not something that we support just yet. But again, that's where with sort of a bit more sp- sponsorship, dare I say, towards the build out required for that, we can easily get language translations in there as well as the multi-platform support.
4: So you mentioned briefly that it's a, a markdown file and a like your scripts, which is a Q file. Um, And I had the chance to go with you and look at a lot of this in more detail. So, like, for anybody who's wondering, it's kind of like you write a markdown file. Inside of that, you put a little, like, a special command that essentially says, this is the code or the script that I want you to run at this specific step. So when you're writing in other languages, you just keep those script commands at the same spots, and you just replace the actual text with whatever language you'd want. So that's, like, what the, the process looks like. And, Marcos, earlier you had mentioned that these documents were testable meaning if i write a guide that you can actually verify that the guide still works whereas like some of the guides on the go blog right now aren't always working do you want to talk a little bit one of you about how that works and you know how those like how that current setup you have enables that
2: yeah i guess paul would be the the right uh, person to explain in detail sure okay
5: um yeah john it's exactly as you said is that the we have a a, a tool that's called preguide that was written Actually, a bit of a backstory to pre-guide. When I first um, was talking to Carmen and Marcos about this project, the idea was that I was initially going to start by writing a few guides and then we sort of step back and say, okay, what does this look like? What do we need to change, etc." But the guide writing process to start with was pretty frustrating because as soon as I'd got halfway through the first guide, I had no way of checking whether the steps that I'd written still actually worked. And so I fairly quickly thought to myself, you know, this is going to be a, it's a problem for me now. This is just not scalable at all when it comes to multiple people contributing, potentially in separate languages. And as we agreed at the beginning of the project, the community aspect of this is going to be very important. So having a process by which people could contribute is fairly important. So that's where a tool called PreGuide was really born. It's a simple tool that, as you said, takes the markdown part of a guide and the Q the script and effectively smashes the two together, producing a markdown output. And that separation of the, the markdown, which is the prose, if you like, from a guide, from the script part, then allows for multiple translations, but it also allows you to add a bit more structure to the specification of the script as well. So we talked about the ability to have multi-platform. If you've actually defined these steps in your guide in a more structured way, and we're using Q for that, as I said, you can then much more easily say that, actually, you know what, at step number five here, if we're running on Windows, instead you need to run these commands here. Or step number six, you know. So that allows you much more easily to have not only platform specific variations in your script, but even language translations as well. So the canonical Hello World program, you might actually choose to provide a localized version of that, which would require you to have a localized version of the file that you're running as well. So splitting apart the prose and the script was a key part of that. And the structure that Q gives us within the script specification allows us, as I said, to have those specializations. PreGuide is then just responsible for pulling all of that together, running a whole load of sanity checks. And so it effectively acts like a compiler as you're writing a guide. You can just have this very tight edit and compile iteration loop. And whenever you change anything within the script itself, as Marcos was saying earlier on, it actually just reruns the entire script to validate that all the steps work as you expect and that the output is as you expect as well. And John, as you were saying as well, then using this sort of text template style, templating within the Markdown file, PreGuide takes the output from the commands that have run in that automated process, the commands that have run in PreGuide, and then generates for you a Markdown file. And that's the Markdown file that you ultimately see rendered on the Play with Go website that is the combination of the template, the Markdown template, and the script output as well.
4: That's really, really neat. Like for anybody listening who's kind of curious, what this also enables is, let's say Go releases one point one seven or Go two or whatever, they could actually take all the guides, run them, and see if they work in Go two, and you know they would actually know immediately which ones work for it and which ones don't. So if you've ever gone on the internet and read a tutorial and been like, okay, this is exactly what I want, and then you realize that nothing works because it's an old version of whatever you're using. This will hopefully prevent that type of issue and really make it easy for them to maintain. And, and even if you need to update a guide, you don't have to get rid of the old one. You can almost have like a guide for the new version and a guide for the old version, and have that backwards compatibility.
5: Yeah, that's exactly it. So uh, just to build on that slightly, is this is something else that we have the the effectively the building blocks for yet, but will just require a tiny bit more build. Um, is this concept of multiple scenarios. And multiple scenarios are sort of like a variation of the multi-platform support. But John, just as you were saying, you would have multiple scenarios for say, like Go 115, Go 116, because there are subtle differences between um, versions where where the command, command Go is concerned. The output is slightly different. And if you're not able to show the user a guide in the version of Go that they're using, It's quite easy to get spooked sometimes by something that's not quite working as you expect. And with Go 1.16 in particular, there are some subtle changes to the way that modules work that will actually require that nuance to be explained, particularly if you're coming from Go 1.15. So yes, not only do we have all of these, as Marcos was saying early on, we have all of these guides being checked in CI every time there's a change made to any of them. It's trivial to say, okay, it's time for us to release all these guides as Go 116, what changes are actually required in them, uh, and then we'd be able to validate them and then publish those with confidence that every single one of the guides works.
6: I'm also kind of wondering if this would be a helpful tool for library maintainers. Uh, if there could be like an integration, because I know one of the things I always struggle with is when I like find a new package that I want to use and it's just like, oh, all right, how do I get started with this thing? How do I how do I actually use it? It'd be really helpful if there was just like an easy guide that the maintainer could just update that has like, okay, here are the steps you need to do. Here's exactly what we need to do to use this package or this library.
2: Yep yeah
5: chris that's that's exactly right
2: not only what we just mentioned about the the fact about writing guides but it, we realized that this also allows to close the gap between the language maintainers uh, or contributors and users right because imagine that you develop a new feature or you want to get immediate feedback about like a, something that you you're basically coding and instead of writing, uh, uh, like a comment in GitHub or some, something like, and, and the, the fact that you have to tell people to clone or like fetch the latest changes from a branch and build a, the thing locally, you could just, for example, leverage on play with Go, like uh, quotes, we're looking for a sponsorship and, uh, basically have a way to show that to your community super easy and, and super fast and telling your, your users, Hey, can you please go to this? try it out and give me uh, feedback to see if that's the expected UX, functionality, whatever. And maybe eventually you could even start playing in a, some sort of like a sandbox and then share that session to someone else so they can reproduce what uh, what you're also doing there, like similar to the GoTour, but imagine it for CLI tools as well. I believe that the possibilities here are, are like uh, endless. Uh, it's just a matter of putting the focus right now on teaching Go, the community, and, and see what are the immediate quick wins we can do for people to get engaged on the project.
0: Marcos mentions a really important point for the future, which is we talk about ecosystems and this tool can be that force multiplier for library authors, for companies that are trying to ignite their own open source communities based on Go. And so I just think, again, when I think about all the things that this can enable and the new future of open source, I know that sounds very uh, uh, pie in the sky, but I think that the old open source, which is static and just text driven is going to be no more in a couple of years and this is the harbinger. We're going to see readmes that are interactive. We're going to see issues where you can click and test there instead of having to, like Marco say, uh, get your own environment set up, right? This can be just such a way to bridge the gap between beginners for whom Not only do they have to learn all the things in order to be able to contribute, but they also have to overcome the biggest gap of all, which is the setup, which was mine for years. I think I lost one or two years about seven or eight years ago because I was too shy to ask about the setup and I thought it was just me. And then people were like, no, it's this janky thing that you got to do and you got to pull in this thing and we forgot to document it and whatever. And so if this is just done for you, then you can get right to it and then learn along the way.
5: Chris, I've actually got a really good example um, to pick up on the point. Giu is a project I think that's actually been talked about on GoTime before as well. Um, Elias now, who's the creator of Giu, I sort of gave a quick demo of Play with Go to him. And he said, "Mm, hang on a second. Is there some way that we can not only have these interactive guides where you're running these programs on this remote session, can they actually render something back to the front end as well? Because GU is it being a very much a visual thing, obviously, it's, pretty, it's going to be pretty useless to run a GU program on a headless remote container. Can we render the results back to the front end? And again, that's absolutely something we can do because GU is cross-platform and can render via WebAssembly. That's the plan is to try and give that a try as well. So GUI would be able to use something like play with Go to not only, as you said, Chris, explain, okay, this is how you would get started with your first Geo application, but actually render the results to you as well. So then if you can imagine this sort of interactive environment where you've got the VS Code there as well, the user hasn't actually had to install anything at all. And they're already running a graphical Go application within the browser. And so that's a pretty a pretty powerful offering, I think, exactly as Carmen said, because it, it just cuts out all that friction for people who are getting started. And I don't think back when I started programming, what sort of friction there was, particularly when it came to Linux or anything like that. It, it's just a, a very, very different story these days. And I think it's a, it's a good one for newcomers to the language.
6: I'm also kind of thinking of uh, the playground, which I think is like a natural kind of like extension of this at some point. Because I know there's lots of times where I have like some application or some little thing I want to try out in my like modules directories filled with all these like x dot dot whatever of just like, oh I, I wanna play with this little thing, but like I can't go to the playground so I can't import other packages into the playground. And this just feels like uh kind of like a precursor to us actually having a playground where we can like import third party packages and maybe even have something that's a little bit like a like a gist, where it's just like, oh like here's like my files, here's everything. Why do you like go run them and I can share them with other people and collaborate.
5: Yeah. I think to the to the credit of the Go Playground, it has actually got some limited support for third-party imports at the moment. It's limited somewhat by uh, how long it takes to then download, fetch, and install those. I think there's it's a fairly conservative limit there. But I, I think you're right, Chris. Is that and this was kind of the thinking with getting this full life cycle of module publishing going as well, because so many guides that. I started looking at and I've been looking at the Vigo, uh, modules and Vigo since the early days, which is almost three years ago now, unbelievably, is that so many of them stopped at saying, all oh, right, and now at this point you get push. And then there's quite a lot of hand waving going on saying, oh, you get push and then you you can do a go get and oh, and you tag and you push that tag. And you're stuck. If you can't follow something at that point or, and or it's not working, then you are stuck. Whereas with the Play with Go guides that we've got, not only have you got that remote container, but you actually, it automatically creates remote repositories for you as you need in order to complete that guide. So you have the full experience of actually publishing modules and getting them via the proxy exactly as the end user, albeit they'll be publishing to a different module path, exactly as the end user should be experiencing it as well.
1: What's up, friends? Have you ever seen a problem and thought to yourself, I bet I could do that better. Our friends at Equinix agree. Equinix is the world's digital infrastructure company, and they've been connecting and powering the digital world for over 20 years now. They just launched a new product called Equinix Metal. It's built from the ground up to empower developers with low latency, high performance infrastructure anywhere. We'd love for you to try it out and give them your feedback. Visit info.equinixmetal.com changelog to get $500 in free credit to play with, plus a rad t-shirt. Again, info.equinixmetal.com changelog, get $500 in free credit. Equinix Metal, build freely.
4: I also find it like a positive side to this is that right now teaching somebody how to create their first package and then import it and use it is you pretty much have to install Go, I think, to do that. And like the playground doesn't allow you to do that. So this type of thing should work really well for that, because even if it's really like a package with one function and you just want to export that function and show them, there's not a good way to do it. And like a guide like this really enables that type of education.
0: Yeah, one of the early things that turned into when I was trying to like improve learn.go.dev, we said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had added to a tour of Go, like a tour of modules? And this is what that became, because we recognize that there are an existing one to two million existing Go users who already have a firm grasp on the language, but need the next step. And this, this is exactly what that is.
4: Yeah, I think that'll help a lot because I know, like I just actually helped somebody today with, they had some code and they were importing a package and they just didn't quite understand, like if you're not using modules that the GoPath actually matters and they had something that worked and then they like moved the code somewhere else and it wasn't working and they're like, why is this all breaking? And just having to explain that to them and show them like this actually matters, like where your code is, or you need to use these modules, which is then all of a sudden introducing a whole new thing that... You don't necessarily want to introduce to somebody right away when you're going to confuse them with it. So having options like this would really help with that.
5: It's one other thing as well, as Carmen mentioned, the wiki earlier on. There's actually a really good wiki for Go modules, but it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it's so easy to edit the content. It's, uh, as we've also kind of discussed, it's so easy for that content to go out of date. It's impossible to check that it's still valid. And all of these sorts of things make for a fairly daunting Experience if you're then, if someone says, Oh, just go and take a look at the Go Modules Wiki for an explanation of how to do that, it's just a well, good luck if you're coming out the other side if if that's actually going to work as intended. And one of the things that it, it had an example of this last week, actually, somebody asked a question in the modules channel on Slack, and it was about, Oh, actually, how does or we were just debating a point, I think, how do, if you have a module, which is major version greater than or equal to two, what strategies do you have for actually publishing those multiple major versions? And it took me literally 10 minutes to pull together a very simple guide that demonstrated the different options available to you. And I then published that guide It's not actually part of the index on PlayWithGo.dev now. But I can now just go and I know that guide works, and I can just put some pros around it to sort of a bit of explanation as to what I've done in each step. But it's a really crisp way of sharing with people, kind of Chris, this is the point you were making earlier on as well, of, okay, this is how, if you wanted to structure your module with a branch-based strategy or a subdirectory for your major version modules, this is how you do it. And... Not only is it the, the explanation of it, but you know it works. So as we, as John, as you were saying earlier on, as we go through the, the new Go versions that they come up, we just know this is going to continue to work, this guide, because we can check it as part of CI every single time.
0: And I also think what's been weighing my, on my mind a lot lately is the software supply chain security, right? This new software reuse problem, which I believe is our collective hurdle that we have to get over and figure out. And I believe that the modules toolchain is along one of the better language ecosystems that has figured that out. But now with play with go.dev, we can even be able to do some early testing and sharing, and you can do some scrapbook or sandboxing of pulling in these dependencies and kind of checking them without having to worry about... You know, yes, we have other ways of sandboxing. We sandbox on VMs, we sandbox in the cloud, we sandbox on our own machine, but this is just yet another way to do that. And again, when you iterate on all the different use cases of this, this is one of those great ones.
2: I have one more observation that I, I believe this week we we'll realize about it with Paul, is after looking at the analytics metrics of Play with Go, we realized that 50% of the audience is coming from mobile devices. Unfortunately, our awesome UI skills that we mastered with Paul in these past weeks. Now we can look for a job as a UI engineer, Paul, don't worry. Surprisingly, the site works pretty well in landscape mode on a cell phone, like like, on any regular cell phone. So now going back to what Carmen was saying regarding that the tutorials and the instructions should be interactive or are going to be interactive in in the near future. If you actually like, for example, see a, a new uh, release of like either a CLI tool or like a Go feature or whatever, if you can give a lot of people access to that information super easy in their phone devices while they are commuting to work, or I don't know, while they are at their sofa, like, you know, without a computer in their hands, that enables a whole set of learning paths that it's just unbelievable. And the, and the numbers talks, uh, talk by themselves, 50% of Play with Go Uh, users are coming from mobile devices.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, I'm really curious because I, I remember making a joke about merging a PR via my phone on the GitHub mobile browser. And I just thought, you know, I'm coding and I'm reviewing and I'm using my little thumbs to check the code and I just wonder, like, will someone write a tutorial or a guide only on a mobile device? That is truly, like, wow to me in terms of the future.
6: Yeah, I'm really excited for the. Hopefully, if we can get the bare entry low for writing guides as well. So I feel like there's so many things that like I've searched around the internet to figure out. Like semantic import versions, definitely one of them. Where I'm like, how does this work again? And if there's just like someone could write one guide that you could just go to and find. Because yeah, when you go to the wiki, I'm always just like. I like grep around or like use find and page and I'm like, I think I found the information that I want. And I just like really wind up asking Brian Mills like, Hey, how does this thing work? And he just tells me, but like most people can't do that. So just having some real good guides around that would be like fantastic. Yeah.
0: And that's how we can scale someone like Brian, right? So for those unfamiliar, Brian is on the Go team, working on the Go command and the open source team. And I wish I could scale a hundred of Brian to write guides, to do content, but he's got to make the Go command better. And I think that's why I really believe that if we continue to do it this way, we can totally scale that content and have that.
5: Yeah, Chris, um, I just build on what Carmen said there by saying that that Getting that barrier to entry low for content creation is key. As I said, there's going to be a few rough edges as we get started there and feedback very, very welcome there. But I think an important part, of letting we have this building block now, is, as Marcus was saying earlier on, the ability to rerun a guide and just check and validate that it actually works. Because if you've got that sort of edit compile cycle with writing guides, just as you have code, you as the developer can just very quickly, as I did with that example, as I cited from last week, in 10 minutes, put together something that is the bare bones demonstration of what is going on in a situation. And then actually you can have other people contributing to the process as well by putting a nice introduction in place, actually writing the guide around it, the the prose itself. So I think there are ways in which to make that barrier to entry nice and low by making sure the tooling is good and fast, etc. cetera. But also if we have a good process for review and editing as well, th- that is very light touch. So uh, sort of imagine a world where we didn't actually have the, this automatic checking of guides it would be pretty hairy as a reviewer because you're basically saying, okay, I've now got to go through and check it myself. And it's, if then if there's another change made, you've got to go through and check it again. That's just not scalable at all. So the barrier to entry is not only the tooling thing, but it's the all cre- the content creation itself. It's the review process as well. So that's where picking up on Comments Point, yes, we need more Brian's and Jay's, absolutely. But if we can make their job of review of these guides much simpler then that's how we can scale things as well. And I'm saying this very much in the context of the Go command, but Chris, back to your earlier point, could this be used for other tools, other libraries, et cetera? Absolutely. So the tools and technology, if you like, that exists for Play with Go is open source, and it should be able to be used for other, other people as well. So.
4: so if people have additional questions or they want to learn more, where do you recommend they go at this point? So best
5: place to start is play-with-go.dev that is the main site and we've got play with at play with go is the twitter handle Um, there's also a play with go channel on slack as well as the github project that marcos mentioned earlier on happy to answer any questions that people have take any feedback it's a good starting point but there's plenty still to be done not only with play with go and but just that effectively the experiment that we're, we're trying here is this interactive form of documentation so As Marcos was saying earlier on, there's many, many ways that people can contribute and feedback is a massive um, form of contribution.
2: One last thing that I would like to highlight. It's also a very nice, interesting project to start basically learning about different aspects of technology. I mean, Play with Go has a UI, has Qlang, which is a very trendy technology or language. I don't know how to describe it, but it's very interesting to learn. It has Go, of course. It has infrastructure. It has containers because all the infra is running on containers. It's a Docker. So it has security concerns because uh, as you may imagine, running a container where you can basically compile and write code and like basically play funky with a, you know, bandwidth and some things. It's a challenge as well. So if you are into DevOps coding, UI, content creation, UX, whatever you feel like you can contribute, please talk to us so we can like help you out in whatever you need.
5: And we're going to be starting to mark issues in the GitHub issue tracker as good first-time issues, help wanted, categorize things a bit better. And Marcos also had the suggestion of pulling together a uh, a GitHub project board so people can see, okay, where are we now, what things are, are planned. But kind of, John, back to your earlier question about sponsorship, if sponsorship will actually help this project to live on in terms of its infrastructure costs, but also kind of where it goes next.
4: So we're kind of running out of time and I forgot to prep you both for this so I apologize. <laughs> but it's time for our unpopular opinion segment.
5: Uh, unpopular opinion. What? I actually think you should probably leave. Uh, unpopular
4: so if you've never heard Go Time, basically If you have one and you want to share, we ask you to share an unpopular opinion. It can be related to tech or anything at all. trying to think of some past examples. Like one example was that the subway, I think, was the fastest form of transit in New York. Maybe they said buses. I don't remember which one they said. But we've had different ones in the past. Um, Others have been more tech related. So people have said like, trying to think, does anybody remember some off the top of their head? I'm drawing a blank.
5: I think, um, didn't you have someone who was speaking from GitHub say that Git is too hard to learn as a as a command oh. wasn't that a most recent one? I think I think
4: we had that one. We've also had um we've had somebody say that dogs are bad in the workplace. um some just different things like that. So if you have any unpopular opinion you'd like to share, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, usually, what happens is after the episode has aired, Jared will actually take the unpopular opinion, cut it out, and put it on Twitter with a poll to see if it's actually unpopular or not. I will warn you that, because most of the audience is gophers, sometimes things that would be unpopular in the whole ecosystem of the developers is popular inside of the Go ecosystem. But do either of you have something you'd like to share?
2: Going back to Paul's comment around Git, uh, if only you had a good platform, uh, Paul, to learn interactive things.
5: Well, that's just it, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) If only someone wanted to
5: write uh, some content for the, uh, the Git command. Oh, you could, yeah, it's just,
2: Oh, up, dude, man. Right. We, we need to build something. We need to build something right away. <laughs> okay. I feel so like those guides are going to have weird. to
4: be like, you're going to have to have 20 hours of guides because there's all <laughs> sorts of weird things to do in Git that nobody remembers because you do it once a year. Oh, exactly.
2: <laughs> now it's called Git Restore, right? Oh, they, they killed me with that one. Uh, it's not Git checkout anymore. I have one, uh, which is, it's interesting because I, I'm actually on my vacations between quotes from, from work uh, this week. And we were—we just decided with my girlfriend that we wanted to, like, bike around the city, and we realized that even though the 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 city has all these new uh, bike lanes, basically the problems regarding like how the city operates are the same ones, right? So, like, you know, people not respecting the rules, either like drivers, other cyclists, the people that work on the street as well. So the unpopular opinion is that it doesn't matter the different ways or means that you. Uh, that you can implement to try to fix the issue. If you don't like basically change the the core, it will not happen.
4: Okay.
0: Totally not unpopular. That's gonna get like (laughs) a 90% agreement rate on Twitter. I bet you, Marcos.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay,
5: I've got one that is Go related. Is that allowed?
4: That's completely fine.
5: Okay, I don't know whether it's, mm, we'll see whether this is unpopular or controversial or both. Um, But Go modules will be the last dependency management system for Go.
4: Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know how to respond to that one.
0: <laughs> like, kind of like the way that MPM is for Node? Like, <laughs> hmm. hmm.
5: <laughs> well, no, it's just that there's, I guess there's a number of, uh, understandably, sort of coming from the background of there being different dependency management systems. It feels like, for me, there is a real net benefit to what modules brings. Yes, there are, there are bits that people find frustrating but i think that the focus that it places on the the module author to respect non-breaking changes and or sort of bump major versions it kind of places the onus on the author in much the same way that it places the onus on the author of go code to write code that is easy for the reader to understand it's exactly that right shift whereas in, you wouldn't just leave the reader of some code to just make a whole load of mistakes as they're trying to understand your code, you make it as clear and easy to understand as possible. In exactly the same way, I think it's sort of encouraging, helping to encourage at least module authors to be more responsible. Not that they're being irresponsible, but you perhaps get the idea. And I think there's obviously tooling improvements along the way that are desperately needed. And I think we're in the sort of the go way just sort of taking out time to work out what they are. But it, it does feel like modules is very much a net positive to things. And so the unpopular slash controversial opinion is that it will be the last dependency management system. There will be no others. For Go, right? For Go, yeah. Well, I mean, there's other languages are welcome to copy. And guess what? There is another language that is going to copy. Go's module-based uh, Q is going to follow the module and package-based approach It's influenced extremely heavily by the way that Go works and its tooling works. And the modules will follow a very similar pattern.
4: It would probably be more interesting if like Peter Bourgeon, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, was here because I I don't know if he would agree with you on that one. I don't think he likes semantic versioning, I think is the bigger underlying issue. And if you get rid of semantic versioning, I don't know if Go modules would stick around or not. I do agree that sticking with something that's built into the Go tooling is enough of a net gain that even if you don't like 100% of it, you'll still use it. Yeah, It's kind of like GoFumped. Even if you don't love the format output, it's there's enough net benefit from everybody using the same thing that it's worth doing.
0: But 10 years later, GoFumped now becomes ossified into the way that modern programming languages put, you know, add as a feature, right? We do mm-hmm. not want to fight over tabs and spaces and also the other benefits that it provides.
4: I still fight with tabs. <laughs> The only time I end up doing that is whenever I'm like copy pasting code to put in like, I write an email newsletter. So when I'm doing that, it's easier to turn it to spaces. So it's not real wide on the screen. And I know there's some CSS to change that, but it's just sometimes easier to have spaces.
0: But it's not Go, right? It's a free form. Yeah.
4: I write Go, I format it, and then I put it into my editor and I replace all tabs with two spaces and then I put it in my email. (laughs) I'll just say, oh, that's not me. That's like the, the email processor.
5: I think there, is the, there are people who definitely don't like the way that modules, some of the sort of the more opinionated parts of modules. I think the thing that's been interesting, as I said, over the almost three years since Vigo was first announced is that it's really hard. It's a massive space to try and sort of summarize what your objections to something might be because there's so much context that um, I'll speak personally here, that if I consider my opinion on it, it is limited to my experience of modules and or packaging and or version uh, dependency management. And it's really difficult to, to communicate to a, a very wide group of people why you think in the widest possible context, modules is or isn't the right, uh, the right solution. And so it's a tough space to kind of win in an argument, I think. And I think that's where... Sort of having really good evidence-based, a really good evidence-based approach to things is is useful, and that's where having an experiment that was Vigo in the start that people could try out they could they could give feedback on, and the Go versions that have happened since Vigo, which has been an iteration on the modules experiment, have been fantastic because the Go team have been incredibly involved in the tools working group, but also in the modules channel on Slack, getting feedback from people understanding, okay, what are the rough edges here and trying to think about solutions in that wider context of, okay, you've got the specific problem here, but actually, you know, this aspect of modules is is trying to address this wider problem here. So it's a very difficult balancing act and one which, if you look at a very specific use case, I don't think you're ever going to say, yes, modules got it absolutely right. But it's that wider context, which I find very hard to appreciate because guess what? I'm not at Google. I'm not at some of these large organizations, and so that's effectively the tough job that Russ, Brian, Jay, and everybody who's responsible for modules has. But I think there's been some fantastic stuff that come that's come out of modules. If you look at PackageSite, the proxy, SumDB, these are real wins to my mind, and they don't demand lock in to the system either. And that's another nice feature of it: you're not locked into it. And I think the tooling is is getting there. Um, this is something that the tools. Working Group, which has over the last two or three years been talking about this, is is kind of trying to help move along a bit. It, it's getting there, but there is plenty of room for improvement there too. And kind of to the point of play with Go is that if the tooling improves, there's now, guess what, a nice way of showcasing it to people as well. So
6: yeah, I kind of feel like whether you fall on the side of like liking modules or not liking modules has a lot to do with whether you're like a library maintainer or just a consumer. So I think historically, modules from a library maintainer's perspective have been like really, really difficult. I think it is getting better now. I think like, the tooling and the knowledge about how to do things is, is improving. But I don't know, even like, at work, we had this problem with like semantic import versions, and we like, tried to switch something over to modules, and it wasn't using modules before, but it was already on V2. And then when you switched it to modules, it was like importing the old, old, old code. St- it was like all sorts of broken, and it, yeah. it took us a while to like, figure that
5: all out. I really wish that we'd had play with Go.dev two years ago, where we could spin up guides that demonstrated to people, hey, you're in this situation. This was actually one of the examples that um, Bill Kennedy gave his feedback. He said, you know what, you can do these as guides, but you could also present them to people as problem-solving situations as well. So you launch a guide, which is in fact a problem, and you explain the background, the problem that says, okay, you've got a module that's in this state here, now... Upgrade it to an, a new major version because you and how do you actually do that, and so you can present challenges to people in this type of environment as well as a way of enforcing learning so yeah chris it 's kind of the frustrations that people have it would be great to just say okay let 's just write a guide from that or let 's write an explanation of how you get yourself out of how you get yourself out of a hole because guess what that 's what we should be doing is providing. Um, examples, documentation to people to help them when they find themselves in a bit of a a corner that, okay, the tooling has landed them in fundamentally.
4: That type of tool would help a lot with like misunderstandings too. Because I remember when Vigo first launched, people misunderstood how it worked pretty drastically in some ways. And all it took was like actually grabbing the tools and running it locally to verify that what you thought was like a bad idea wasn't actually how it worked. But the number of people who didn't do that seemed astronomically high, especially on like Hacker News and sites like that, where they might not have even been Go developers and they're just like, this is a terrible idea. And, you know, people like to uh, read the headlines and comment. <laughs> so it could definitely help on that like type of situation.
5: Yeah, for sure. And that was, I think, part of the thinking behind Jay's module retraction guide. Um, it just gives people a zero cost way of having a click through and seeing, oh, okay, this is how module retraction works. Fantastic. That's gonna solve my use case, done.
4: Okay, so I think that about wraps it up. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about, mention to bring up that I did not get to? I think that just about covers it from...
5: Yeah, I think that's it from, from my setup. So. We can say a big thank you to Carmen again. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, Paul, Marcos, thank you for joining us and explaining everything. Carmen, thank you as well. It's been a while since we've had you. Chris, it's good to have you on your uh, first episode as a, as a host. This is what, your third or fourth episode total though? Uh, third. Okay. It, it, it almost doesn't count at that point then. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your old hat by then.
4: <laughs> Once you've been on the show twice, it's just like, eh, he's just here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode,
3: subscribe now at gotime.fm. Hey, we are getting close to the end of the year and you may be dusting off the old blog to write that epic best of or worst of post. If so, we'd love if you'd include GoTime in your list of favorites. Let us know on Twitter when you publish. I can pretty much guarantee you a retweet from GoTimeFM. Music for GoTime is produced by the Mysterious One, Breakmaster Cylinder, and we're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. That's all for this episode. What to expect when you're not expecting. Next week.